Welcome to the Rapid Response RN Podcast, helping you keep your finger on the pulse of your patient's condition with real-life stories from the front lines of nursing. This podcast can help you sharpen your assessment skills, improve your ability to recognize the signs and symptoms of your patient's decline, be inspired to speak up and advocate, and know how to jump into action to promote the best outcome for your patients. Hey, everybody. I'm your host, Sarah Lorenzini, a rapid response nurse and educator who loves telling stories to teach critical thinking. On today's podcast, I'll be sharing a story about a patient whose life was saved when his nurse recognized his drowsiness as more than just needing a good nap. When I arrived at the patient's bedside, I see a 60-ish-year-old man snoozing. So I walk up and introduce myself to him with my loud Sarah voice. Hi there, my name is Sarah and I'm from the rapid response team. Mm, No response. And he was very difficult to arouse, but did respond to a firm sternal rub and went right back to sleeping. At a quick glance, I could see that he was breathing four or five times a minute and little shallow breaths, but his skin was warm and dry and I could feel a strong radio pulse. So I'm not thinking we have a cardiac output issue here, at least not yet. The primary nurse and nurse tech were trying to get the pulse ox to pick up his SpO2, but just couldn't get a good waveform. I asked for someone to bring me a bad valve mask because I knew this patient was hypercapnic and I could see where this was headed. The nurse starts telling me the story. He says, So this patient was admitted three days ago for a back injury after a car accident. He's got a history of hypertension, COPD, and alcohol abuse. He's on the CWA protocol for DTs and has had to get a lot of benzos to keep him calm. He's been yelling and refusing vital signs but also asking for pain medicine around the clock. He got Dilaudid about two hours ago and diazepam one hour ago and finally fell asleep. I walked by to check on him, and I didn't want to wake him, but I could just tell something was up. So I called the tech to get a set of vital signs, and when we couldn't get the SpO2 to pick up, I just called the rapid response team. You'd think all this commotion would wake him up, but he is out. Now pause. I know what you're thinking. That nurse gave this guy too much sedative. Okay, let's not get too judgy. You guys have all had that patient that's just a challenge to care for. You know, the ones who are demanding and cranky and ungrateful. The one who's always on the call light and you think, I wish they would just take a nap and let me get caught up on my other patients. Yeah, that was this guy. I'm sure when this patient finally fell asleep, his nurse breathed a sigh of relief and warned all of his colleagues not to wake the sleeping bear. We've all cared for some grizzlies and, and this could happen to you too. But let's look at what this nurse did well. He managed the patient's pain. He gave the patient benzodiazepines per the SIBO protocol to prevent some of the dangerous consequences of DTs. And he didn't ignore the sleeping bear. In fact, he went back and checked on him and proceeded to try to wake him up when he felt that it was worth the risk. I'd say he was a good nurse who was proactive in managing the patient's pain, who followed a protocol and his intuition. Strong work, nurse. Now, let's continue with the story. We finally got the sat probe to pick up on the patient's earlobe, and it was 85%. By this time, I had just gotten the BVM open and laid the head of the bed back so I could assist his ventilations, since his five shallow breaths just were not cutting it. Soon after, the respiratory therapist arrived, so I let her take over the airway, and I got the physician on the phone. She gave us orders for both naloxone and flumazenil, 
but I decided to give the Narcan first because I was hoping that opioid overdose was the culprit here rather than the benzos because he kind of needed the benzos for his DTs and I didn't want to reverse them. Though I would have, obviously, if the patient was at risk of respiratory arrest. So the primary nurse gave the naloxone and I was correct. Just one dose of 0.4 Narcan and he started to perk right up and take better breaths. The SpO2 improved to 92% and we switched him from the BVM to the nasal cannula. The RT drew an ABG and his CO2 was 68. And that was after he actually started taking breaths. I'm sure it was much higher when I first met him. We ended up moving him to the intermediate care unit so he could be monitored more closely as he detoxed and he was discharged home the next week. Awesome. Okay, there is so much to talk about here. First, how did I know this patient was going to need the bag valve mask and not just some supplemental oxygen before we even got the pulse oximeter to read? Well, I watched his chest rise and fall, and there just weren't enough rises and falls. Respiratory rate for an adult is 12 to 20. <clears throat> so five just ain't cutting it. When you suspect a respiratory problem, either because the SpO2 is reading low or the patient tells you they're experiencing shortness of breath, the question you have to ask yourself is, are they breathing too much or too little? If they're breathing more than 20 times per minute, they're obviously compensating for something and trying to bring in more oxygen. So why don't we help them out a little bit by adding more oxygen, either via nasal cannula or non-rebreather mask. If they're breathing too little, they clearly need more breaths and not just oxygen. In fact, if I were to just put a nasal cannula on a patient taking five shallow breaths per minute, they're only sucking in the oxygen five times per minute. I can't force oxygen into the lungs via simple nasal cannula. They have to inhale. If they aren't responding to me saying, wake up, take a deep breath, then I have to facilitate that breath for them. On the other side, if the patient's sitting up in the bed in tripod position, breathing 40 times per minute, and I bust out the bag valve mask and try to force them to take some of my assisted breaths from the BVM, that's not going to go so well either, let me tell you. We will be fighting each other for turns to take and give breaths. I've seen it happen, y'all, and it's quite ineffective. Patients taking 40 breaths per minute don't need more breaths. They need more oxygen. But this guy needed more breaths and more oxygen, and that's what he got with the BVM plugged into 15 liters per minute, and it worked. Second thing, how did I know right away that this patient wasn't just sleepy? and that his CO2 was high even before we had the ABG result. Well, he had all three of the top three reasons that I've seen for hypercapnia in patients. Both opioids and benzodiazepines suppress the central nervous system and can decrease respiratory rate and effort. And he'd been receiving both around the clock. He also had COPD and possibly lived a little hypercapnic at his baseline, and this just threw him over the edge. You see, both hypoventilation, not taking enough breaths, and COPD present challenges with getting the CO2 out of the lungs. We call it ineffective gas exchange in nursing speak. So, with hypoventilation, they aren't taking enough breaths to exchange the gases, and the CO2 starts to build up in the blood. With COPD, 
there is so much dead space in the lungs that the CO2 can't cross over the capillary membranes and make its way out. So CO2 is stuck and it collects in the bloodstream. Normal CO2 is 35 to 45 millimeters of mercury. Low levels mean the patient is blowing off too much CO2, and high levels mean they are holding on to CO2 for some reason. Well, that's a very simplified explanation. There's a little more to it than that, and I will do a whole future episode on ABGs. But for now, just know that 68 is really high. And for this patient, it was from the triple whammy of underlying COPD, opioid administration, and benzodiazepine administration. But even if I had no history about him, about what meds were on board, when a patient is that somnolent, one of the possible sources I always consider is elevated CO2. The next question I want to address is, what's the big deal about having a high CO2? Well, high CO2 levels can result in a multitude of complications. You see, CO2 is an acid, so having lots of it could cause your pH to drop dramatically. None of the cells in the body function their best in an acidotic state. Let's discuss how detrimental hypercapnia can be for the body, starting with neuro. Increased CO2 increases cerebral blood flow and could increase to the point that it increases the intracranial pressure, causing seizures, coma, and even death. The cardiovascular system is also negatively affected by hypercapnia. Increased CO2 causes decreased myocardial contractility. In other words, the heart can't squeeze as effectively. With decreased contractility often comes decreased blood pressure, decreased cardiac output, arrhythmias, and worst case scenario, cardiac arrest. So yeah, CO2 is kind of a big deal. It's not a common value to be monitored on the measures floor, at least not yet, but when we have the capability to monitor CO2 levels, and even better, a CO2 waveform, it can tell us so much about the patient's condition. My hope is that in the future, CO2 monitoring will become a standard of practice for a larger patient population than just sedated ones in the ED and ICU. An acute increase in CO2 is an unfortunate consequence of some of the drugs that we give to help patients feel better, even to patients being cared for by a very astute team. He just had the perfect storm to set him up for respiratory depression, resulting in hypercapnia. I mean, we can't change the guy's COPD, and he had a legitimate reason for receiving narcotics after his injury, and we would be negligent not to administer benzos and allow him to suffer through the DTs and all of the risk associated with alcohol withdrawal. I imagine most of my listeners who work on inpatient units have used some version of a CWR protocol before. But for those of you who are unfamiliar with it, CWA is an acronym for Clinical Institute Withdrawal Assessment. It's a way to assess patients who have alcohol dependence when they are admitted to the hospital to determine the severity of their withdrawal symptoms. Then, based on the score, some hospitals have something similar to like an insulin sliding scale. They use that to dose antiemetics, benzodiazepines, and antipsychotics based on the CWA score. I love nurse-driven protocols, and this one has been proven to reduce severity of withdrawal symptoms and drastically cut down the patient's hospital length of stay. So I am by no means discouraging the use of this therapy. When you are caring for a patient who has <clears throat> a known history of alcohol abuse, ask the doctor to order CBER protocol. It's good stuff. Now, let's chat about naloxone. 
the brand name that most people are familiar with is Narcan. And it sure has gotten a lot of media coverage lately. I remember the days when I had to explain to patients and their families how Narcan worked. But now, even most lay people know all about it. But the way we give it in the hospital is different than a layperson word. Narcan can be administered in the form of a nasal spray or an IM injection. But in the hospital, we give it IV. Usually the starting dose is 0.2 or 0.4 milligrams and given as a slow IV push. Don't slam it in. That's just mean. Unless they're in cardiac arrest, then yeah, give it quickly. But for someone who's still responding, even if just to pain, you want to give it slow to avoid bradycardia, nausea, and vomiting. Once the Narcan's administered, it should reverse the effects of the opiate within a minute or two. If not, you can repeat the dose every two to three minutes for a total dose of two milligrams. And the half-life is only about 60 to 90 minutes. That means you could fix your patient's breathing for now, but they might be right back in the same predicament in an hour. So watch them closely. And remember that your patient finally got some good pain relief, and you just strip that away from them so they may not be in the best mood when they come around. Don't expect them to wake up thanking you for saving their life. <clears throat> I've actually had a few patients wake up throwing punches. So be prepared for the worst and know that you are doing what's best. Speaking of what's best, let's talk about the purpose of Narcan administration. It can be given as a treatment to reverse the cause of the respiratory depression and restore adequate ventilation, but it also has some diagnostic value. Having worked in the ED for many years, we frequently would receive patients with unresponsiveness or lethargy, and initially, we don't have any idea what the source of the lethargy is. Is it their sodium level? Are they in DKA? Have they had a head injury or a stroke? Are they septic? Or did they take too much of a certain substance that has caused this? So we give Narcan to try and narrow down the differential diagnosis list. <clears throat> if we give it and they wake up, then we know some form of narcotic was the source of the altered mental status. But if you know someone is high on something, you don't have to give Narcan to reverse it unless they're dropping their SATs or they aren't protecting their airway or they have signs of hypercapnia. We don't give Narcan just because someone is high. It is not your job to teach someone a lesson or punish them for their opioid addiction. It's our job to make sure they are safe. And if there isn't a good reason for reversing the narcotics effect in their system, then do yourself and your patient a favor and don't give the Narcan. I've never had it personally, but based on my patient's responses, it kind of sucks. What about flumazenil, also known as romazicon? It works similarly, but for benzodiazepine overdoses. The onset is about one to two minutes after administration, but its peak effect is between six and 10 minutes. The initial dose is 0.2 milligrams IV, pushed slowly over 30 seconds. If the patient doesn't perk up, you can give an additional dose of 0.3 milligrams, and after that, the dose is 0.5 milligrams at one minute intervals, with a max dose of three milligrams. But giving flumazenil has some major risk. Most commonly, seizures. Some would argue that the risk outweigh the benefits in certain patient populations. Patients who take benzos chronically are more likely to develop seizures after the benzodiazepine antagonist is injected. And any patient with a history of seizures, head injury, 
or tricyclic antidepressants on board is more likely to have a seizure from the flumazenil. So it's important to know your patient's story before administering this drug. Alrighty, I think that it just about covers the nursing nuggets from this scenario, but let's review the key points. <clears throat> First, when you suspect a respiratory issue, ask yourself, does this patient need more oxygen or do they need more breaths too? If they are breathing too slow, move the bed away from the wall, open up your bag valve mask, attach it to 15 liters of oxygen, and give your patient some breaths at a rate of about one every five seconds. Don't wait on RT to show up. Yes, all things airway, breathing, and ventilation is kind of their jam, and they're really good at it. But you can assess and intervene to fix breathing problems too. Have someone else call RT, and you breathe for your patient if they can't seem to be doing it on their own. If they are breathing really fast and looking like they're hungry for more oxygen, give them some oxygen. Use your nursing judgment whether they need to be bumped up a couple liters or placed on a non-rebreather mask. But know that you can always titrate down if you overshoot or titrate up if what you start with isn't improving your patient's SpO2. You've got this. Next, the most common overdoses <clears throat> that cause respiratory depression that you're likely going to deal with as a nurse are going to be narcotics and benzos. Fortunately, we have naloxone and flumazenil to reverse them if the patient gets a little bit too much on board. But weigh out the risk versus the benefits because these drugs are not benign. We obviously want to give them if our patient isn't breathing adequately, but we don't give them just for fun or to quote unquote, see what it will do. So stay close after you give these drugs and don't expect a thank you from your patient. And finally, when your patients are sleeping, you don't have to defer any and all assessments until they wake up. A professor of mine told me a story about a coworker who documented, quote unquote, patient resting comfortably and no apparent distress every hour on night shift. But when day shift came on, the patient was pulseless, freezing cold, and rigor mortis had already set in. Eek. That really stuck with me. Obviously, I'm still talking about the importance of watching chest rise and fall almost 20 years later. So take a moment to step in your patient's room. Watch that chest. Watch their worker breathing. And if you can't determine if your patient's okay or not, then by all means, wake them up. Well, that's it for today's episode. If you like this podcast, I'd love to hear from you. You can shoot me an email with questions or comments, and it would mean so much if you could take a moment to write a review on iTunes, as this helps more listeners find this podcast. Thanks for listening, and I hope you learned something that will save a life. Remember, nursing is a team sport, so trust your intuition and don't give up advocating until you are confident you've done what's right by your patient. You've been listening to the Rapid Response RN Podcast. The views and opinions expressed on this show are that of Sarah Lorenzini and hers alone. They are not intended as medical advice and should not take the place of your institution's policies or procedures. Evidence-based practice is ever-changing, and your patient's care should reflect the current best practice. If you want to get in contact with Sarah, you can find her at rapidresponsernpodcast at gmail.com or on the Rapid Response RN Podcast Facebook page as well as the podcast website rapidresponsern.com.